Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. In the early 1900s, someone was breaking into homes in the dead of the night in New Orleans and viciously attacking people. No one felt safe. Many died, and those who survived were left with the terrifying image of a dark figure looming over them with a heavy axe burned into their memories for the rest of their lives. Just as suddenly as he appeared, he vanished, and no one has ever solved the mystery of the New Orleans axe murderer. The Axeman was an American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, officially from May 1918 to October 1919. Some have connected similar attacks that took place as early as 1910, though. He mainly targeted Italian-American grocers, leading many to believe the murders were racially motivated. But as the killer was never caught, this was never proven. Racism against Italian immigrants was strong in the South at that time. The South had lost the American Civil War 50 years prior, and white Southerners were still bitter about it. Since Italian immigrants flocked to the South after slavery ended and worked alongside black laborers, Italians were classified as colored in the eyes of whites. So many immigrants migrated to New Orleans from Sicily between 1884 and 1924. The French Quarter unofficially became known as Little Palermo. Many of these immigrant farmers saved their money and began opening little grocery stores to sell their goods. White Americans felt threatened by the Italian population's success and started coming after them with lynch mobs. Regardless of the general hate and discrimination they experienced, it seemed the community had a scarier boogeyman to fear. He would quietly remove a small panel from the door in order to reach in and unlock the door from the inside. He never brought a weapon with him. He always chose his weapon from the victim's own belongings, usually an axe from the woodpile outside in the yard. He would then quietly creep into the victim's bedroom and murder them in their own beds with their own axe. Nothing of value was ever taken, and the murder weapon was always left behind. In the span of a little more than one year, as many as a dozen people were attacked and at least six people died. This is so creepy to imagine, and back then they didn't have security systems like we do now. Anyone could break into your home in the dead of the night. I read somewhere that at the time of these attacks, the media was urging people to get dogs to alert them to intruders. The original security system. I mean, that's pretty smart, especially if you have like a <laughs> chihuahua or something. <laughs> Who was the first to fall victim? In 1910, an Italian grocer named John Crusi was attacked in his bed by a man wielding an axe. The man threatened John's wife, but didn't attack her. The couple's home was attached to the store that they owned and operated during the day. Police were confused by the whole thing, since the attacker only got away with $8 and the family's pet bird, and John survived in the end. Over the next couple of years, several Italian immigrant families had their homes broken into, but nothing was taken. Several of these families were attacked by a man wielding an axe, like Epitano Andalina and one of his two sons. Tony Sclambria and his wife, and Joseph David and his wife, were all thought to be early victims of the axe man. None of them died as a result of their injuries, and were never officially attributed to the serial killer by police. The main reason was he went quiet for several years after those attacks before he began what is documented as his official murderous rampage. On May 22, 1918, Andrew Maggio stumbled his way home from the local bar in the middle of the night. 
He finally arrived home to the family-owned grocery where he lived with his older brother Joseph and Joseph's wife Catherine. Andrew fell into bed and passed out in a drunken stupor. At some point during the early morning hours of May 23rd, he woke to an odd sound coming from his brother and sister-in-law's bedroom next door. As he listened closely, the groaning noises grew louder and he knew something was horribly wrong, but he was too scared to check on them alone. He ran out of the house and sprinted to his other brother Jacob's house and begged him to come check it out. The two brothers got to Joseph's back door and were terrified to see it wide open, with one of the panels pried off. They knocked softly on Joseph and Catherine's bedroom door, but there was no answer. When they opened the door, they found their sister-in-law sprawled on the floor in a pool of blood. She had been hit in the head with an axe and her throat had been cut so deep she was nearly decapitated. Then the brothers heard a gurgle from the other side of the bed. They rushed to their brother and Joseph clung to them gasping for breath. He also had been bashed in the head with an axe and his throat had been cut, but not as deeply. They called for an ambulance, but Joseph died before help ever arrived. Police found the bloody clothes the murderer had been wearing discarded in the home. He had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. A complete search of the area wasn't conducted by police after the bodies were removed, but they did happen to later find the bloody razor, which had been used to cut the throats of the victims, on the lawn of the neighbor. The razor actually belonged to the brother Andrew, who was a barber. Police were surprised that he failed to hear anything since the intruder had forced their way into their home and the attack was so violent it must have been loud. Andrew became the prime suspect, but investigators were forced to release him after they were unable to disprove his statement, especially when they heard an account of an unknown man who was supposedly lurking near the residence prior to the murders. Joseph and Catherine's murder was never solved. Uh, I mean, I get it because one of the weapons belonged to him, but it wouldn't be a smart move to immediately call the police after attacking someone. He seemed to really be distraught to me. He makes sense as a suspect for sure. But yeah, he seems to genuinely love his brother. And being passed out drunk can totally make you sleep through a loud attack. Yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty heavy sleeper after drinking, so I get (laughs) it. But thank goodness for that lurking neighbor, I guess. I mean, it got the police off his back. Right? About a month later, on July 27, 1918, at around 7 a.m., John Zanska, a local baker, was making his normal deliveries when he discovered Louis Besmer and his girlfriend Harriet Lowe unconscious, lying in puddles of blood, clearly bleeding from their heads. The axe they had been attacked with was their own and was found in the bathroom. Clearly, the attacker had taken the time to clean up after the attack and again left the weapon behind. Police arrested their only suspect at the time, Louis Obicon. Louis was a 41-year-old black man who worked for Louis at the grocery store. There was no evidence pointing to Louis, but police were suspicious when he couldn't provide a concrete alibi for the morning of the incident. Louis was later released because police weren't able to gather sufficient evidence to charge him with the crime. Amazingly, Louis and Harriet were both still alive after the attack. As Harriet was recovering in the hospital, she started making some shocking claims. While drugged up and falling in and out of consciousness, Harriet accused her boyfriend Louis of being a German spy. America had just recently joined World War I and suspicions were high in general, making authorities take her delusional claims very seriously. Reinforcing the claim, police found a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish in a trunk in the home. 
Government officials began a full investigation into Louis' potential espionage, and he was quickly arrested. Two days later, he was released, and the two lead investigators on the case were demoted due to unacceptable practices. As Harriet's mind cleared, she recanted her accusations. By August, doctors determined Harriet would need brain surgery if she was going to survive. The surgery was successful, but she contracted meningitis while in the hospital. While laying in bed dying, Harriet once again made accusations against Louis. She claimed he was the one who attacked her with an axe back in June. Even though he had also been a victim of the attack, Louis was once again arrested. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1, 1919, after a 10-minute jury deliberation found him not guilty. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> I felt bad for Lewis, though, and honestly, the spy stuff is a little off the rails. Harriet just seemed out of it to me, and who knows how much brain damage she had from that attack. Not to mention the drugs she was on for her recovery. She was not a reliable witness. At all. <laughs> but I am glad that Lewis got a fair trial. Also, police realized Louis couldn't possibly be the serial killer they were looking for when another attack happened while he was sitting in jail. On August 5th, 1918, Ed Schneider came home around midnight after a late night at work to find his very pregnant wife Anna unconscious in a pool of blood in their bed. Amazingly, she was still alive and was rushed to the hospital. She was sleeping when she woke to find a dark figure standing over her and was hit in the face and head repeatedly with an axe taken from the couple's shed. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Two days after the attack, Anna gave birth to a healthy baby girl and eventually made a full recovery herself. The Schneiders weren't grocers, so police wondered if maybe this was just a normal burglary gone wrong. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home except maybe six or seven dollars that he had in his wallet. The windows and doors to the apartment appeared to have not been forced open. Police arrested a random ex-convict who lived in the area named James Gleason. He was arrested shortly after Anna was found, but later released due to a complete lack of evidence. People questioned if he was innocent, why did he run when police came to arrest him? He made a statement saying that he only ran from police because he was scared from being arrested so often unjustly. It was at this point lead investigators began to publicly connect the attack of Anna, the Maggios, and Harriet and Louis. Only five days later, sisters 15-year-old Pauline and 13-year-old Mary Bruno woke up to the sound of struggling coming from the adjoining room where their uncle lived. Their uncle, 31-year-old Joseph Romano, who went by Joe, often looked after the girls for their parents. The family ran a tiny store attached to the front of their cottage, but it was too small to be considered a true grocery. The girls went in to check on their uncle and found him with blood running down his face. The axe had cut straight through to his brain, but he was still on his feet when his nieces found him. The girls saw the attacker as he fled and described him as, quote, dark, tall, heavy set, wearing a dark suit and a black slouch hat, end quote. Joe died two days later from his injuries. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Joe's murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city, with residents living in constant fear of an Axeman attack. The Romanos weren't successful grocers like the other victims. They were a lower middle-class family barely making ends meet. 
Police received an onslaught of reports from citizens claiming to have seen an axe man lurking in several New Orleans neighborhoods. A few people even called to report that they had found axes in their backyards that may be murder weapons. John D'Antonio, a retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axeman murders was the same person who had attacked several individuals in 1911. The retired detective cited similarities in the cases as reason to assume that they had been conducted by the same individual. John described the potential killer as an individual with dual personalities who killed without motive. This type of individual, John stated, could very likely be a normal, law-abiding citizen who was sometimes overcome with an overwhelming desire to kill. He later went on to describe the killer as a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Well, I'm glad the baby survived and the mother recovered. That could have easily been a very tragic case. It's extremely weird that the attacker didn't immediately turn on those girls. First of all, Anna is a super mom for sure. As if giving birth isn't hard enough, she did it days after being attacked by an axe. Joe's nieces got very lucky. The axeman does always attack while his victims are sleeping. Maybe he's not confident enough to confront someone full on, even two teenage girls. True. Maybe he just wasn't expecting them. And as far as the detective's description of the axeman, I think it's terrifying to think that your normal neighbor could also be a possible serial killer. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> So things went quiet for seven months, lulling everyone into a false hope that maybe the killer had moved on. That was until March 10, 1919, when the horror moved across the Mississippi River to a New Orleans suburb called Gretna. Italian grocer Charles Cordomigula lived with his wife Rosie and their two-year-old daughter Mary in the sleepy community. On the night of March 10th, neighbors heard screaming coming from their house. Lorlando Giordano lived next door and had once been close friends with Charles and Rosie, so close that Mary called him Grandpa. Lorlando was also a grocer, and when Charles opened a rival store next to his, the friends had a falling out. Lorlando had even taken Charles to court over it, but he never stopped loving his neighbors deep down. Lorlando was woken up by his 18-year-old son, Frank, who was screaming that the Cordomigulas had been attacked. The father and son rushed next door, pushed their way through the crowd into the house. Charles was lying bloody and unconscious on the floor while Rosie sat next to him cradling little Mary in her arms. All of them were covered in blood. Lorlando ran to Charles and tried to stop the heavy bleeding coming from his head until the ambulance arrived. Mary was already dead when the family was found, but Charles and Rosie were both taken to the hospital to be treated for their serious skull fractures. Police interviewed them in the moments of consciousness they could hold on to, but they insisted they couldn't remember anything about their attacker. Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Across the river, New Orleans Superintendent Frank Mooney was hardly surprised by the details of the crime. It had all the signs of an axeman attack. Frank was careful not to step on the Gretna authorities' toes. Instead, he kept to his side of the Mississippi, respectfully offering the help of his department if it was needed. But Frank Mooney soon found out Gretna police had messed up the investigation from the very beginning. According to historian and author Miriam Davis, by the time police arrived, neighbors and onlookers had flooded the crime scene. 
They trampled over potential footprints from the killer and touched surfaces with their fingerprints. Gretna Chief of Police Peter Leeson had taken the panel the killer had removed from the door to gain entry to the home and just nailed it back on the kitchen door. Right and left, evidence was tampered with and vital clues that could have pointed to the true killer were corrupted, if not lost entirely. But it didn't matter to the Gretna police because they already had their suspect in mind. Authorities were convinced from the beginning that 69-year-old Lorlando and his 18-year-old son Frank Giordano were responsible for the attack on their neighbors and rival grocers. Lorlando was in too poor health to have committed the crimes, but Frank was young and more than 6 feet tall and weighed over 200 pounds. Rosie and Charles continued to insist they couldn't remember who had attacked them, but didn't believe that it could be the Giordanos. Police harassed Rosie, asking her leading questions like, did Frank Giordano hit you with an axe? And was Lorlando with Frank at the time that he attacked you? Police were getting nowhere. So when Rosie was released from the hospital, they arrested her and made it clear that they wouldn't allow her to go home until she made an official statement that Lorlando and Frank were the ones who had killed her daughter. Rosie reluctantly made the statement and was finally released. Lorlando and Frank were promptly arrested, charged with murder, and even though there was no real evidence against them, Lorlando was sentenced to life in prison and Frank was sentenced to hang. Another case of the police being too lazy to just do their job. Maybe they would have found some real evidence if they were smart enough to keep people away from the crime scene in the beginning. Can you imagine not only being attacked but losing your child, then being harassed by police to change your truth? This one pisses me off so bad. I always hate when police get tunnel vision on one suspect and never consider that they could be wrong. But to arrest the victim and convince her that she will go to jail if she doesn't lie under oath for the police is a new level of low. Her little girl was just murdered in her arms. Leave that poor woman alone. This is such a traumatic event in her life, and I'm sure it had to mess her up. Absolutely. After the trial, Rosie and Charles divorced. In the winter of 1920, Rosie found herself utterly alone. The confession she had made began to haunt her. She grappled with the question of whether or not she should come forward. But then Rosie contracted smallpox, and as she lay in bed in the throes of a terrible fever, she dreamed that St. Joseph appeared to her and told her, Rosie, you cannot die with that boy's life and that old man's liberty on your conscience. Suddenly, she was sure she had to confess. Rosie had been struggling with smallpox for weeks, and perhaps on some level she knew she was dying. On February 3, 1920, she notified the press and retracted her statement against Frank and Orlando. The news was circulated in papers across Louisiana, and the wheels of justice were set in motion. It would take nearly a year, but finally, in December of 1920, all charges against Frank and Orlando were dropped. After a year and a half, the father and son were finally exonerated. Rosie died before they were officially released, but she died at peace, knowing she had done the right thing in the end. While Orlando and Frank sat unjustly convicted, the killings continued in New Orleans. Throughout 1919, armed men kept watch over their sleeping families, police patrolled the streets every night, and departments hired more and more police daily. Three days after Charles and Rosie were attacked and Little Mary was murdered, a New Orleans newspaper received some shocking information. 
Some think the real killer didn't like Lorlando and Frank getting credit for his attack. Sham will read the actual words sent by the supposed killer after this short break. On March 13th of 1919, a local newspaper received a letter, supposedly from the killer himself. They hesitated to print it in case it was a hoax, but in the end, they went with it and printed the letter on page 18 of the morning paper. It was postmarked to come from hell, and it was addressed to esteemed mortal. The letter read, and I quote, They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I'm a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there's any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. End quote. The letter was signed, The Axeman. That Tuesday night, March 19th of 1919, professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties all over the city, at hundreds of houses around the town. If they couldn't afford a record player or live band, they crowded in the city's clubs and dance halls. People danced until their feet bled, and bands played for hours on end with no breaks. All of New Orleans' clubs were filled to capacity, and jazz filled the air well into the early morning. Historian Miriam Davis, who wrote The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, thinks the letter in the paper was not written by the real Axeman. She writes, quote, The Axeman was almost certainly not a well-educated person. He was probably a burglar, but the person who wrote that letter was extremely educated. She thinks a man named John Joseph Delvia wrote the letter. He was a New Orleans musician and jazz composer. The two days after the letter was published, he came out with a song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. He made a fortune off that song, and it's possible the letter was just an old-time viral marketing campaign. Either way, just as promised, there were no murders that night. What an insane letter. It was totally either a marketing gimmick and a genius one if it was, 
or a crazy person looking for attention. The newspaper didn't even put it on the front page. Clearly, they had doubts about it being legit. I mean, it could have been anyone, but if it was the Axeman, he really got off on terrorizing the city. Yeah. The Axeman often had breaks between attacks. It's not like he was killing someone every night. So one night with no murders isn't evidence that the letter was real. That's true. In fact, there were no murders for the next five months. Until August 10th of 1919, when Italian grocer Steve Boca was attacked while sleeping in his bed. He woke up to see an axe-welding intruder standing next to his bed. Steve was hit several times in the head before losing consciousness. When he woke up, he had no idea how much time had passed, but ran out into the street looking for the intruder. The axeman was long gone by then, and it was at that point Steve realized his head had been cracked open and blood was everywhere. He ran to a neighbor's house where he once again lost consciousness and collapsed. Just like the other victims, nothing had been taken from the home, and yet again, a panel on the back door of the home had been chiseled away. Steve recovered from his injuries, but never regained his memory or remembered any details of the trauma. The next attack came less than a month later. Neighbors looked out for each other during these terrifying times, so on the morning of September 4th of 1919, neighbors went to check on 19-year-old Sarah Lawman, a young woman who lived alone. When she didn't answer the door, they broke in and found her laying unconscious on the bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the house through an open window around the back. The bloody axe was found by neighbors on the front lawn. Sarah eventually recovered from her injuries, but like Steve, couldn't remember anything about the attack. How horrible must it have been to be peacefully sleeping and then suddenly be attacked out of nowhere and never know what happened? People like Steve are amazing to me. His head was cracked open by an axe and he chased after the intruder. That's crazy. Well, at that point, his body was likely in a state of shock and he didn't realize how badly hurt he was. I wish he would have been able to get a good look at him, though, and give a positive identification. Yeah, these attacks had been going on for a year and a half. It must have been so frustrating that literally no progress was made in catching the attacker. And there are more, too, right? Well, what is considered the official final attack of the Axeman is a controversial one, since it doesn't follow the typical pattern of the Axeman perfectly. On the night of October 27th of 1919, Italian grocer Mike and Esther Pepitone were sleeping in their separate bedrooms when Esther was awoken by a loud scream from her husband's room. She ran to the doorway and saw two figures in the room, one of which was holding an axe and the other was wielding a large bolt with a heavy net, like what's used to secure a circus tent. The men took off when they saw her and she claims to not have seen them well enough to provide a description. Mike had been struck in the head 18 times and was covered in blood. Esther and Mike had six children, so Esther sent her 11-year-old daughter to get help while she stayed with her somehow still-living husband. An officer was headed home when a young girl came running up to him screaming, My father is full of blood. The officer jumped into action and ran with the girl back to the family's home. Mike had clearly been brutally beaten. His face was smashed in and he was choking on his own blood. He was barely alive when the officer got to him and he died two hours later. While investigating, detectives learned that Mike had ties to the mob and his father and him were involved in the murder of another Italian gangster a decade earlier. It seems as though the other family had finally taken their revenge and Mike's death was nothing but a mob hit, settling a vendetta. 
The newspapers ignored investigators' findings, though, and published their own theories that the axeman had struck again. That attack is definitely strange. For the first time in any of the attacks, there are now two men, and they are somehow linked to the circus? The circus wasn't in town for the other attacks. Not to mention Mike had a violent past that made him more likely to be a target for a personal attack. It feels like it was a copycat murderer, or they were banking on fooling the police into thinking it was the axeman to cover up the mob killing. That totally makes sense. This one just doesn't fit with the other axeman attacks. You said this was the last one? Well, just as suddenly as the murders had started, they stopped. After Mike, there were no more Axman murders officially reported. Evidence from the police records and newspaper accounts, however, show that he may have struck elsewhere in Louisiana. Some link the Axman to the killing of Joseph Sparrow and his daughter in Alexandria in December of 1920. Also, Giovanni Orlando and Doretter in January of 1921, and Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles in April of 1921. The killer's M.O. in these murders were the same, breaking into an Italian grocery in the middle of the night and attacking the grocer and his family with their own axe. Back then, police departments didn't talk to each other, though, and newspapers rarely reported events outside their own cities. After 1921, the axemen then disappeared completely, never to be heard from again. Interesting. So there could have been more attacks by the axemen in other cities and even other states. Police just didn't make the connection. He totally could have continued killing, and people just didn't realize it was him. Yeah, he could have hopped from state to state, and no one would have put the pieces together because news didn't spread that far. Okay, let's get into my favorite part of these unsolved cases, the theories. Yes, let's get into it. So over the last hundred years, many theories have been debated. We're going to discuss a few of our favorites, though, but hit us up on social media if you have a theory we missed. One possible suspect was a man named Joseph Mumphrey. Esther Pepitone later moved to Los Angeles and remarried to a man named Angelo Albano. However, on the second anniversary of her first husband's death, her second husband disappeared and was never seen again. Before their marriage, Esther said Angelo had ended business deals with a man who went by many names, including Joseph Mumphrey. After Angelo's disappearance, Joseph visited Esther and demanded $500 and her jewelry, threatening to kill her the same way he killed her husband's. In response, Esther shot him with a revolver, killing him on the spot. When Esther was arrested for shooting him, she claimed Mumphrey was the axeman and she had seen him run from her house after killing her first husband. LAPD made note about the link to the death of her first husband, Mike, and she was acquitted. Turns out, Joseph Munfrey, a man some historians believe to be the gangster Frank Doc Munfrey, led a blackmailing gang in New Orleans that targeted Italians. This man was in and out of prison for the prior 10 years, and his time out of prison mostly coincided with the killings of the Axemen. There was only ever circumstantial evidence linking him to the Axemen crimes, but it was enough to convince many people that he was the killer. But remember, Esther originally said there were two killers that night in her husband's room. Either she was lying or there were multiple killers. The disappearance of Esther's second husband was also never solved. Hold up. Esther now has two husbands that die mysteriously, and the supposed killer can't defend himself because she killed him too. Are we sure Esther didn't kill her husbands? It's all too convenient. Yeah, she's seeming a little sus. It's not uncommon for the spouse to be a suspect in cases like this either. She could have copied the recent legitimate killings to get away with her own murder. 
This Mumphrey guy sounds like a bad dude, but I'm not sure I'm convinced he's the axe man. What else do we have? Well, the second theory is simply that not all the killings were the work of the axemen. There were significant differences between many of the attacks. Some of the victims thought the killer was white, some remember him a dark-skinned man, and others said that he was mixed race. All the victims claimed he was a large, looming figure, but none of the descriptions were consistent in any other way. The ways in which the intruder broke into the homes often varied. Sometimes the panels were removed from the doors as if someone squeezed under the door. Other times, small holes were made with burglary tools in order to unlock the doors. Then, of course, there was Sarah's attack where the open window was utilized. The attacks were all similar enough to have been the work of one serial killer, but also different enough to bring speculation of copycat killers. In fact, many copycat burglaries did take place during that time. Robbers would break in, steal everything they could get their hands on, and leave a random axe behind to throw off police. Some suggest the first victims, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, were killed by the brother Andrew due to his barber's razor being used to cut their throats, and the fact that he supposedly ran to get his other brother before checking on the couple when as far as he knew, everything was fine. As for Louis and Harriet, some still believe Louis was the attacker and he hit himself in the head with the axe to make it more believable that he was a victim. His injuries were far less severe than Harriet's. Even police think Anna was attacked by a random burglar that thought the house was empty and panicked when they saw her, though they could never prove it. Joe Romano's murder also didn't fit the pattern, as most of the victims were successful grocers and he was just an average poor man looking after his nieces who were completely spared even though they saw the attacker. It was also out of character for the Axemen to leave witnesses untouched. Charles, Rosie, and Mary were the first outside the main city of New Orleans, and some still believe Lorlando and Frank really did attack their rivals, even after they were acquitted. Steve Boca and Sarah Lawman were both attacked while sleeping, by a man with an axe, but wouldn't the killer be better at fatally killing their victims by now if the same man really had so many murders to his name? And then, of course, we already discussed the police's theory that Mike Pepitone was killed by the mafia out of revenge for his own previous murderous activity. There are also some that find Esther a reasonable suspect for the murder and disappearance of her two husbands. This theory both makes a lot of sense and seems too far-fetched. It's easy to see how each murder could have been unconnected, but for them all to be so similar would be too much of a coincidence. I think maybe some of them, like Mike Pepitone, were copycats, but they can't all be. I mean, not all killers use the exact same method over and over again, you know? Yes, there's some big similarities, but some enjoy switching it up, and the girls could have just caught him off guard, causing him to run. Very possible. What other theories do we have? Well, the third and final theory is that all of these murders were the work of one crazed serial killer, and his motives were racially motivated. As Seth mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Italian-Americans were seen as less than white by the white Southerners. Most of the Italian immigrants in New Orleans at this time were from Sicily and had fairly dark skin. They didn't fit neatly into the white or black categories of the South, and they were willing to do jobs that the whites weren't. As a community, they did well economically and started building up their part of New Orleans. That led to some racial anxiety among white middle-class workers and resentment of these not-truly-white foreigners who were doing better than they thought they ought to be doing. There is another racially-motivated theory that maybe the Axeman was getting revenge against Italian-Americans because black jazz musicians weren't getting their due credit. 
trying to protect jazz or something. You see, the first official jazz recording in 1917 was done by an Italian-American named Nick LaRocca, who was a jazz guitarist and composer. It's a controversial time in jazz history, specifically because there was no credit given to black jazz musicians who came before him. The record was jazz-like, but not authentic jazz. It led to many saying, including Nick LaRocca himself, that he and his band, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, invented jazz. Even though jazz had been popular among black communities for decades before Nick LaRocca hit the scene. This theory only fits if you believe the real Axman wrote the infamous jazz letter, though. Racially motivated in the South sounds about right. <laughs> I don't know about the jazz connection, though. That is dumb to claim you invented a genre of music that had existed for a long time already. But LaRocca did that in 1917, and these attacks started as early as 1910. If race was the motive, I think it's likely a white guy mad that he wasn't as successful or who had a grudge against Italian immigrants. Yeah, well, in America, a certain race does claim to have invented, owned, and discovered certain things, so that's not surprising. (laughs) These killings being racially motivated in the South of all places is also not surprising. And it's not like he was out here killing the wealthy quote-unquote Americans. That's true. It's been so long, I guess we will never know the real motive. The Axon murders are so ingrained in the New Orleans spirit, it inspired a whole subgenre of music called Axman's Jazz. The Axman has also inspired several terrifying boogeymen over the years in the horror genre across hundreds of movies and TV shows. As for real life, there are of course countless haunted tours you can take if you find yourself in New Orleans, and stories of the Axman are guaranteed to be included. According to local legend, the Haunted Hotel of Nola is the location believed to be where the Axeman hid between murders. This is supposedly the place where he laid his head during his murder sprees. Locals believe that his ghost remains at the hotel to this day, and in the back of the hotel, there is a quaint courtyard with strange dark vibes. Visitors have claimed to have seen several wandering shadows, pools of blood, captured strange EVPs, and experienced bizarre electrical hiccups with their cell phones. Okay, so story time. So when I went to New Orleans back in April of this year, I went to the Haunted Ghost Tour where we walked the city at night and visit extremely haunted locations. Well, one location I visited was one of the Axeman's victims' homes. I was told by our tour guide to stay out of the parking lot of her building. In that parking lot, tour guides and locals could feel someone touching them and choking them. I also noticed not a single car was parked there. That's crazy. The violence of these attacks left behind such strong energy. Not to mention, if the killer died in New Orleans, his spirit could still be roaming the streets. I'm so jealous, by the way. We need to take that trip together next time. New Orleans has easily become me and my husband's favorite place to go. (laughs) (laughs) And the Axeman's spirit isn't the only one roaming those streets. After a hundred years, this mystery will likely never be truly solved. No matter what the motive behind the murder spree was, remember that six innocent lives were taken, and those who survived were never the same again. It's not surprising that a city with such a rich, beautiful, and complex, but also tragic history hosts so many ghosts. It's important to remember and honor those lives taken too soon. New Orleans is a city like no other, with hundreds of years of history steeped in mystery. There's no better way to explore the haunted side of New Orleans than the entertaining and educational tours offered by Haunted History Tours. 
They are renowned for incredible storytelling and wow-worthy explorations. They use only the industry's best guides and storytellers. Expect to walk away impressed. I know I did. Check them out by visiting hauntedhistorytours.com or by calling 1-504-294-8446. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Let's talk about the magical powers of music. Who knows if the Axeman really was the one to demand jazz that night, but whoever it was had one thing right. Music has the power to soothe the soul. The genre of music doesn't matter, only how it makes you feel. Magical music is anything united around honoring the gods, nature, the ancestors, or simply magic itself. Find the music that connects your soul to the universe in a deeper way. Whether it's folk, blues, jazz, country, Celtic, or heavy metal, doesn't matter. Find the magic that moves you in new ways. Music is one of my favorite forms of therapy, other than real therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.